Hi, welcome to Pitt Town Church. We are so glad that you're listening to this podcast. We pray that this sermon encourages you in your walk with Jesus. If you would like more information, check out our website at www.pitttownchurch.com. We're going to read the Bible now, and the, we have two Bible readings tonight. So the first one is from Ezekiel chapter 37, and it'll be from verses 1 to 14. The hand of the Lord was on me, and he brought me out by his spirit and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. He led me all around them. There were a great many of them on the surface of the valley, and they were very dry. Then he said to me, son of man, can these bones live? I replied, Lord God, only you know. He said to me, prophesy concerning these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord God says to these bones. I will cause breath to enter you and you will live. I will put tendons on you, make flesh grow on you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you so that you come to life. Then you will know that I am Yahweh. So I prophesied as I had been commanded. While I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together, bone to bone. As I looked, tendons appeared on them, flesh grew and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. He said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man. Say to it, this is what the Lord God says. Breath, come from the four winds and breathe into these slain so that they may live. So I prophesied as he had commanded me. The breath entered them and they came to life and stood on their feet, a vast army. Then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Look how they say our bones are dried up and our hope has perished, we are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, this is what the Lord God says. I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them, my people, and lead you into the land of Israel. You will know that I am Yahweh, my people, when I open your graves and bring you up from them. I will put my spirit in you and you will live and I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I am Yahweh. I have spoken and I will do it. This is the declaration of the Lord. Our second Bible reading tonight will be from Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 to 29. Enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the road is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who go through it. How narrow is the gate and difficult the road that leads to life, and few find it. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravaging wolves. You'll recognise them by their fruit. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? In the same way, every good tree produces good fruit, but a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, neither can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that doesn't produce good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, so you'll recognise them by their fruit. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name? and do many miracles in your name? Then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. Therefore, 
Everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a sensible man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the rivers rose, and the winds blew and pounded that house. Yet it didn't collapse because its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain fell, the rivers rose, the winds blew and pounded that house, and it collapsed, and its collapse was great. When Jesus had finished his sermon, the crowds were astonished at his teaching because he was teaching them like one who had authority and not like their scribes. As I've been reflecting on the words of our Lord Jesus that we heard just a moment ago in this latter part of Matthew chapter 7, this question would not leave me. It's a simple question, yet the most important question one can ask any person bearing the impress of their maker and destined to an endless existence. I feel like my voice could travel this room. Um, the question is, has your heart been converted? This is the question that Jesus brings before each one of us, asking each one of us to search our own heart. Let us start by looking at Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 to 14. Throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has been calling us to the very different way of life for his disciples, and now he comes to the crux of his teachings for us. There are two roads. The first road has a wide gate, and the road is broad. The term broad here means spacious or easy. This is the way for those who follow their own inclinations, that is, the devices and desires of their own hearts. There are so many things to pursue in life, to live for. So why does Jesus say this road is easy and wide? It is because this road does not require anything of us, but to be ourselves, to be very much like the world. And this is, in fact, the road that many of the world are traveling upon. What this means is that if we look just like the rest of the world, if we look like our non-Christian friends and neighbors in how we travel the road of life, then we are on the easy road that leads to destruction. William Law, the theologian, writes that Jesus calls us to renounce the world and differ in every temper and way of life from the spirit and way of the world to take up our daily cross, to deny ourselves, to give up our whole hearts and affections to God, and strive to enter through the straight gate. You see, followers of Jesus are called to be distinct, to be a new and different people. To be a follower of Jesus, we are to enter through that narrow gate. The word translated here as narrow is closer to that older translation of straight, S-T-R-A-I-T, -A, a gate that you have to squeeze into and through. The gate is straight or so narrow that we need to leave everything behind, our sins, worldly desires and ambitions, our self-righteousness, 
even our very selves. To become a follower of Jesus, we must come absolutely spiritually bankrupt, poor in spirit, and submit all of our lives to the Lordship of Christ. We must, in the words of Ephesians 4, verse 22, take off our former way of life, the old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires, to be renewed in the spirit of our minds and to put on that new self, the one created according to God's likeness and righteousness and purity of the truth. Our old selves cannot come with us through the straight gate. We must leave them behind. You see, it does not work to come to Jesus and say, I want you as Savior, and I will follow you with half my heart. I will follow you with my mind, but not my work, or not my money, or not my sexuality. The Christian life does not work by us saying, I will follow Jesus, but I will hold on to this secret sin right here. That's, that's mine. I will follow Jesus, but my whole life won't change. I will follow Jesus on Sunday, but not on Saturday night. That is the idea of cheap grace, of forgiveness without repentance, of grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without the living incarnate Jesus Christ. And that is the easy road that leads to destruction. True grace, the saving grace of the gospel, is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer calls costly grace. For when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Come and die to yourself so that you may live in Christ. Costly grace, Bonhoeffer writes, is the gospel which must be sought again and again, the gift which has to be asked for, the door at which one has to knock. It is costly because it calls to discipleship. It is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs people their lives. It is grace because it thereby makes them live. It is costly because it condemns sin. It is grace because it justifies the sinner. You see, if we contributed at all to our own salvation— we may be able to hold something back, some piece of autonomy, but because we are saved by pure grace, unearned and unmerited, we can hold nothing back as the Lordship of Christ makes a mighty claim upon our whole lives. The narrow and hard way is to be constantly leaning into the grace of Jesus as he shows us more and more of our sins that by the Spirit we need to cut off from our lives. And we strive, empowered by the Spirit, to overcome these sins, to put away the old self, to live our whole lives for God, striving for righteousness. Do you remember, perhaps, when, when you first became a Christian and there were like, three or four sins that you had in your mind. And if you could just overcome those three or four sins, you would have the righteousness of Paul. You know, you'd be 
glorious in all your righteousness. And then as time goes on, all of a sudden, God reveals some more sins that are hiding underneath there. And he says, that's great. Now, now how about this? Come, let, let's work on this now. Come lay this one down at the cross. And, and you're like, that, that's not a thing. That was mine. That's the hard way. And friends, Jesus is telling us that all of us are on one road or the other. We are all on either the easy road that leads to destruction, that is to hell and eternal suffering separated from God, or on the hard road that leads to eternal life in Jesus. And Jesus is telling us that the choice is ours. Which road will you take? Which road are you on? There is no third road. Now let's look at verses 15 to 20. In this section, we read of false prophets in sheep's clothing, but who are in fact wolves. But what is a false prophet? A false prophet is someone that blurs the issue of salvation by either distorting the gospel to the point that we cannot find the narrow gate, we cannot see that it is only by coming to Jesus and submitting our lives to him and not by trusting in our own righteousness that we can be saved, or by making out that the narrow and hard way is much easier than Jesus implies, and that to walk it requires little, if any, restriction on our belief or behavior, a sort of easy beliefism rather than the wholehearted devotion and submission to the Lordship of Christ. And we are told that we will know them by their fruit. Do they produce good fruit or bad fruit? Interestingly, if we look down at verse 22, we see a list of, of what we would think of as good fruit for ministry. And yet Jesus sends them away and says that he never knew them. This indicates that the fruit Jesus is talking about is deeper than just appearing to do the right thing or by having an effectual ministry. Indeed, this applies to us as well. Do we produce good fruit or bad fruit? Charles Spurgeon puts it this way. He says, good works must be in the Christian. They are not the root, but the fruit of his salvation. They are not the way of the believer's salvation. They are his walk in the way of salvation. Where there is healthy life in a tree, the tree will bear fruit according to its kind. The desire of men created anew in Christ is to be rid of every sin. You see, this isn't just about good works, but also about our hearts, our character, our conduct, our message, our motives, our influence. And our self-examination here is absolutely necessary because it comes alongside a terrible warning. For the tree that does not bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. That is the eternal fire of hell. So what is our fruit? Do our lives show the fruit of the Spirit? 
Are we overcoming sin that had us in its grips a year or two ago? Are we talking about Jesus more than a year ago? Are we discipling others more than a year ago? Are we giving up our time, talents, and treasures more than a year ago? Is Jesus more the center of our lives and habits and work and family now than a year ago? Does our heart hunger and thirst for righteousness, for Jesus? In verses 21 to 23, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, and do many miracles in your name? Then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you evildoers. Now, I don't know if those words haunt you like they haunt me. But I can think of nothing more haunting than this warning Jesus gives to us that there are some who claim to be followers of Jesus, even some who claim to be followers of Jesus and who have done great deeds in his name, and yet they are not true disciples of Jesus. And he will, in the end, cast them from his presence into hell. It is a reality that haunts me as we gather as the visible church to know that there are people in every church. There are people in this church who say they are followers of Jesus, who think they are saved, but in fact are not. There are some who think they are safe, who will cry, Lord, Lord, but who are in fact going to be cast from the Lord's presence on the day of judgment and sent into the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth forever. Now, I don't want this to be, but I think too often we fail to grasp the seriousness of the Christian life and the severity of our situation and the gravity and reality of hell and the fact that there will be people whom we love that will be in hell. Friends, we must examine our hearts and lives. Jesus, throughout the Sermon on the Mount, is calling us to an unconditional commitment of mind, will, and life to his teachings. This is what it means to do the will of our Father in heaven, to have our whole hearts, our whole lives converted and to walk on the narrow road. When Jesus says that there are those who say, Lord, Lord, we see those who have an intellectual assent and profession of faith. And they even have great feeling, which is what's symbolized there by that doubling of Lord, Lord. And yet, they do not have true faith. See, intellectual assent and profession of faith, even with great fervor, is not enough. We live in an age and in a culture in which we think we are determined 
by what we think in our minds rather than what we do. Here's an example. As Christians, and especially as Protestants, we know that reading our Bible and prayer are vital to having a relationship with Jesus. We would all intellectually assent to that. Yet answer in your own head how often and for how long you read your Bible and pray each week. Now, how often and for how long do you spend watching television or on your phone or on social media each week? Thankfully, our phones actually tell us how long we spend on our phones. There are some who 100% genuinely agree with the statement that Jesus is God, was crucified and raised from the dead, and yet their lives show no fruit of a repentant heart. This may even be some in this room right now. However, in the words of James chapter 2, verse 19, you believe that God is one, good. Even the demons believe and shudder. You see, John Calvin writes that true doctrine or belief is not a matter of the tongue, but of life. It is not just a matter of memory or intellect, but rather doctrine is rightly received when it takes possession of the entire soul and finds a dwelling place and shelter in the most intimate affections of the heart. And he says, so let such people stop lying or let them prove themselves worthy disciples of Christ, their teacher. In order for doctrine to be fruitful to us, it must overflow into our hearts, spread into our daily routines, and truly transform us within. And this is why Jesus is calling us to look at our hearts. The theme we have seen throughout the Sermon on the Mount. For unless all of our being, our head, hands, and heart are converted, and we have fully submitted and surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus, then our profession of faith is empty. The plea of the true Christian is that of a heart converted. It is the plea that only by what Jesus has done can we be saved. And in response to the costly grace of Jesus and empowered by the Holy Spirit, our entire life is changed. Not just our minds and feelings and actions, but our hearts as well. Now, at times, we can hear heart and think it means just our feelings and emotions. But what the heart means in the Bible is more like the very core of our being. The word here, cardia, it means the very seat of our will or volition, the driving force within us that which orients us towards our deepest longings and loves and desires. So Jesus is saying that unless he is your deepest desire, your greatest longing, and your fundamental love, which motivates all of your life and actions, then your plea of Lord, Lord, will be empty. Where are our hearts? What do we long for? What do we desire? 
In verses 24 to 27, Jesus says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the rivers rose, and the winds blew and pounded that house, yet it didn't collapse because its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the rivers rose, the winds blew and pounded that house, and it collapsed. And it collapsed with a great crash. Here we have Jesus drawing a comparison between the person who hears his words and acts on them and the one who hears his words and does not act on them. The distinction is between members of the visible church, and on the surface, they both appear to be building Christian lives, but only the foundations hidden from view shows what they truly are. Have they actually put Jesus' words into practice? Have their hearts and lives been radically changed by the Lord Jesus so that they will be like a house built upon the rock and able to withstand the storm of the day of judgment? Or has their house been built upon the sand and when the storm comes and friends, the storm of the day of judgment is coming, great will be the fall of that other house. The question is not just what you hear or just what you think or just what you believe, but rather what you do. In other words, whether the lordship of Jesus is the reality that shapes our life. Now, there is something really important to point out here. Jesus is not saying that we need to do anything in order to be saved. Rather, the point is that whichever road we are on, whichever plea we have made, and whichever foundation we have, these things reveal who we are already serving. John Stott helpfully puts it this way. He says, This is not to say that the way to enter the kingdom of heaven is by good works of obedience. For the whole New Testament offers salvation only by the sheer grace of God through faith. What Jesus is stressing, however, is that those who truly hear the gospel and profess faith will always obey him, expressing their faith in their works. This is what Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse 15. If you love me, then you will obey my commands. And what James 1.22 says, be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. And friends, all of us in this room have this choice. Will we build our life upon the rock by hearing the words of Jesus and acting on them? So where are you? Which road are you on? Which fruit are you producing? Which plea do you have? Upon which foundation have you built your life? You see, either we are on the hard road or we are not. Either we bear good fruit or we do not. Either we are true disciples or we are not. 
Either we do the will of our Father in heaven or we do not. Either we have built our lives upon the rock or we have not. There is no third way. Either we follow Jesus with everything we have or we do not. Either we are on the road to heaven or we are on the road to hell. The consequences really are that dire and the choice that stark. Has your heart been converted? Or is your confession of faith in Jesus limited to your lips or ears or mind or hands? Here are a few questions that help us to think through where our hearts truly are. What do you desire? How do you spend your time? If we have eight hours sleep every day, and now for the younger parents or parents of young children in the room, eight hours is like amazing. But if you had eight hours sleep every day, then in one week we have 112 waking hours. How many hours per week do we spend reading our Bible or praying or gathering together with God's people? And now how many hours per week do we spend watching Netflix or on social media or on our phones? So let's ask ourselves again, what do we really love? I think it's so easy for us to sit here and think I'm not that person to whom Jesus will say, but I never knew you. Yet this passage forces every one of us to consider with fear and trembling, where is our heart? Throughout the Sermon on the Mount, we have seen over and over again Jesus making clear that he is so very different from this world And if we are his followers, his disciples, we are to be just as different from this world. But remember that saved people are changed people. Those whom God saves, those whom he justifies by grace alone, through faith alone, he also sanctifies. That is, he works in us over time to make us more holy, more righteous, and more like Jesus. This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and see, the new has come. And again in Romans chapter 6, should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? Absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive in to God in Christ Jesus. We are not our own. We belong to God. Therefore, let us live and die to him. And to him, let every part of our life be directed. To be a follower of Jesus requires complete submission to him. Jesus does not just want your mind or just your hands and strength, or just your soul. Jesus wants all of you, your heart, mind, soul, and strength. 
Have you experienced the Holy Spirit working in your heart to change your life? Are you different today? Have you grown to be more like Christ today than you were five years ago? Are you daily dying to yourself and living for Christ? Has your heart been converted? Now, this is a hard message, and if you try to accomplish this by your own will and strength, you will never find the narrow road, you will never bear good fruit, you will never have the right plea, and you will never have the security of a life built upon the rock. But the beauty of the God we have in Jesus, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is that this is the God that promises in Ezekiel, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. This is the God who took the prophet Ezekiel out to that valley of dry bones and said, I will cause the breath. The word here is it's breath or spirit or wind. I will cause the breath to enter you and you will live. I will put tendons on you, make flesh grow on you and cover you with skin. I will put spirit in you so that you come to life then you will know that I am the Lord. Tell me, can you see the valley of dry bones? Can you see all the bones there spread out? And can you hear as the Spirit of God moves the rattling sound in that valley as bone comes to bone? Can you see tendons appearing on them and flesh growing and skin covering them? Can you feel as the spirit comes as the wind and the spirit comes into the slain and now we live? Friends, if you don't know without a shadow of doubt that your heart has been converted, then this prophecy from Ezekiel is the word of the Lord for you to hear. It is God by his spirit that can make you live, who can put flesh on your dry bones and the spirit within you and true breath into your lungs. And friends, this is the God that promises in Jesus that if you but ask, it will be given to you. If you seek, then you will find. And if you knock, the door will be opened to you. Friends, if you have not yet experienced this new heart and new spirit, let us ask God together right now to give you the new heart. Let us go to the cross and lay down our lives, submitting all that we have to Jesus, dying to ourselves so that we may live in Christ. Come to the one who can put tendons and flesh on your dry bones so that you may come to life. But be warned that the Christian life is not easy. And once God begins his work in you, he will not stop until he completes his work in you. But friends, where can we go but to the Lord Jesus? For he is the one with the words of eternal life. And how joyous it is to be truly alive in Jesus and to build your life upon the rock. 
So let us pray. Heavenly Father, you know the hearts of every person here. We pray as those here who want to come to you. We take you as our Lord. We believe that God has raised you from the dead, and we want what you have done on the cross to apply to us and our sin. Lord Jesus, save us, forgive us, and give us a new life. For those of us here who have not yet experienced the new life in Christ, the Holy Spirit working within us, we pray that you would send your Holy Spirit upon us. Give us new hearts, O God, and place flesh upon these dry bones that we might live. May your Holy Spirit move in our hearts now and set us on fire for you, Lord, so that we may never be the same. And we ask this in the name of your Son, our Savior, and only Mediator, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. 